Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means shaking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Terry, thanks for doing the interview. Very good to be with you. Thank you. So, this podcast is called The Disruptive Entrepreneur, and I usually talk to people about how they can disrupt an industry themselves, how they can innovate. But I'd say that your story is kind of the opposite, where you were just doing your thing and then you were disrupted. So, could you take us back to the time right before what you're famous for happened? and kind of how it happened and how you felt? Well, that's a, a long story. I'll try and keep it reasonably <laughs> brief, otherwise we'll be here all day. Sure. <laughs> um, I suppose I began my, what became rather more of a full-time occupation, uh, a negotiator, a negotiator for the release of innocent people who'd been held captive, way back when I lived in Uganda with my family. And we went to Uganda, where I was an advisor to the first African Archbishop and had responsibility for leadership development across the country, both with church and non-church people. And <coughs> we were there and the coup took place. Amin came to power. And they were tumultuous days, the very difficult days. Uh, I met Amin on several occasions and some of my colleagues were taken by him, and I had to negotiate for their release, and was successful. Not successful for all of them. I mean, a number of people, a lot of people, were taken and thrown into those terrible camps and lost their lives. I used to visit the camps. You know, I'd go in the, in the morning, and there were people lying on the floor who'd been beaten the night before, not allowed to touch them. It was brutal situation. And I suppose one of the great lessons I learned from that is what happens in any society when law and order breaks down, not just Africa. We see it in America when, in some of the cities in America where law and order breaks down, you get the same eruption of violence. And it's, it's frightening. And there in Uganda, for the first time in my life, I actually saw people um, killed before my eyes, and quite a young man. And I suppose that set me off more resolutely in the direction of attempting to work across life for peace and for reconciliation. Um, subsequent to that, I worked a lot in South Africa alongside Desmond Tutu, um, when he was endeavouring to um, create a more fair and just situation for people. And I worked in pretty well every troubled spot in the world, from the southern Philippines, India, South America, all over the world. And then I was appointed uh, as an advisor to the then Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, <laughs> to clear one thing up, I'm not a clergyman, mm. I'm a layman. Right. 
Even though people have written to me at times as Archbishop Terry Wayne. <laughs> That's not me. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a layman. Mm. But I've uh, had this international experience and he employed me because he wanted someone on his team who would be uh, uh, you know, knowledgeable about international affairs and take care of his foreign journeys, travel with him and deal with problems as they came up. So partly troubleshooter, if you like, and mm. partly advisor. And those were the days when hostage-taking was really becoming the vogue, if you like. And people were taken in Iran. I went out to Iran and was able to negotiate their release without payment, without exchange. Uh, people were taken in uh, Libya. I went and met with Gaddafi and was negotiated their release. People were taken in Beirut and you can't get away with it every time. Mm. And in Beirut I got captured, uh, having obtained or partially obtained the release of some people, but I was captured in Beirut how and spent it, about five it, years. Sorry, how did it exactly happen? Well, it happened as follows, really. It's a long story. Um, I, one of the difficulties is in hostage negotiation, as you will appreciate, is the fact that it's very dangerous if you're going to follow the route that I followed in these political cases, which is meeting face to face with hostage takers um, and attempting to build a relationship of trust, attempting to get to the root issue of what it is, that they're, why they're behaving as they're behaving, and trying to find um, a way out. I mean, roughly, there are two types of hostage taking. There's political hostage taking and there's criminal hostage taking. Both are criminal acts. But they're divided that way because the way in which you negotiate would be different. You'd negotiate in a criminal case, um, which is a case where money is demanded, very differently than you would in a political case where a political goal is sought. And uh, all my experience basically has been in the political realm. So the way I did that was to seek a face-to-face -face meeting with hostage takers, try and build a relationship of trust, try and get to the root issue, and then try and find a compromise solution that didn't involve compromising any of the principles that I stood on. You know, I would not breach law, or I would not, in fact, pay, make payment for the release of hostages. And that was successful. Um, it broke down in Beirut, <coughs> and to cut a long story short, it cut down, it broke down because of um, political duplicity. Um, the, the captors, my captors, with whom I was negotiating, uh, thought wrongly that I was an agent of a foreign power uh, when I wasn't. Mm. And uh, they took me in order to interrogate me and see whether or not I was in fact an agent of a foreign power. So the first year in captivity, I was um, uh, suffered some brutality. I was tortured and faced a mock execution. At the end of the first year, they said, uh, we believe you, we believe you are a humanitarian, and you're going home. And I was put into decent accommodation for a period of time, for about a couple of weeks. But then something happened in the outside world, and I didn't go home. I went back into captivity was for another almost four years. So it was 1,763 days in all in, in solitary confinement. Wow. So um, there's a pretty famous uh, news article quote stroke headline which says I spent five years as a hostage in Beirut but I never cried. 
<laughs> now, yeah, to be that, fair, that's, a, that's an editorial uh, yes, addition. And know. I don't know if that's word for word what you said or if that was. Um, no, no, it isn't word no. for word what I said. Um, you know, the, when you do a, a, a news interview, as you know, uh, someone puts in the headline for yeah, you. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't say that. Um, no. But I, I don't believe, I, it might be true. Mm. It's not something I would say, but I, I don't believe that I, I cried in that period of time. I think I cried inwardly. Mm. I think I cried. Because I don't think anyone can endure a period of total isolation. I mean, to give you an example, I was chained by the hands and feet to the wall. Um, I slept on the floor. I had, if I was in a room above ground, metal shutters were put in front of the window so no natural light came in. I had no books or papers for over three years. No one to talk with. When anyone came in the room, I had to wear a blindfold. So um, it was fairly isolated. And in that situation, you see, you see your skin go white because you've no natural light. You see your body, your physical body, begin to deteriorate. And somehow you wonder if, in fact, you're going to deteriorate mentally and spiritually. And, um, and why didn't you? Because I found a way of coping with that. Um, I mean, I, one of the reasons I talk about it, people say today, why, why do you talk about this? Why do you go back on it? And I think it's an extreme situation. And mercifully, very few people uh, will have to undergo that type of situation. But I think it's from extreme situations that you can take understandings that are applicable to normal life. And anyone watching this podcast or anybody in life will face certain degrees of stress and difficulty in their own life when they can be very, very severely tested, if you like. And you have to find a way through it or not. Mm -hmm. Some do, some don't. What was your in my, Yes, in my situation, I realised that I had to keep my mind alive that I had to keep my brain exercised. I mean, I wrote my first book in my head without yeah. pencil and paper called Take Non-Trust, right. which is published, mm. still in public, it's still published today. And that was written without pencil and paper. I uh, composed a poetry in my head, which I'd never done before in a significant way. And um, later on, I published that also. Um, so that was one way, by keeping my mind alive. Mm. Now, the most difficult period in captivity was at times when I was in total solitary confinement. Uh, in the dark, I was in total solitary confinement virtually for the whole period. But when I was in the dark um, and couldn't find the structure to the day, because I'd wake up and it was probably well, three in the morning, who knows. Mm. And that was alleviated when I was put into a room near to a mosque. I could hear the call from the minaret morning, noon and night. And that gave me a structure. So one of the things you have to do also to keep your sanity is somehow find a structure for the day, keep your mind alive. I did it in that way. I also did a lot of mathematical problems and right. I told myself stories. I mean, I've never been any good at math. But it's a way of keeping your yeah. mind alive. Because Grant McEwen and JC Borland have both asked here, and I wanted to honour them, and I think this is where you're going. Did you have any exercises or techniques to keep yourself mentally fit? And um, <laughs> So they've, they've obviously realised that yeah. um, that was what you needed to do. That's what you need to do. The other thing, some people have said, you know, what role did faith play in this? You know, your own belief. Well, when I was captured, 
I said to myself three things. I don't know where these things came from. I said, no regrets. Don't regret what you've done. Um, you've done it with what sincerity you believe you have. Um, if you regret, you're going to be demoralised. No self-pity. Don't feel sorry for yourself because there are others who are in far worse situations than yourself. So if you allow yourself to have self-pity, you'll be demoralised. And no other sentimentality. By that I meant, don't look back and say, oh, if only I'd been a better husband, a better father, you know, spent more time with the family, had longer holidays. You can't live your life again. You've lived it to that point. You have to accept who you are at that point and move on from there. Mm. And um, I can't say I kept absolutely those points, but I, I did my best and they were a help. Mm. And also I had to learn how to control anger because I was angry. I was angry at word being broken. I'd been promised safe conduct was broken. And I was angry about that. And somehow I had to learn how to use that anger, that force generated by anger, constructively rather than allow it to use me destructively. And how did you do that? Well, first week, I refused all food. I didn't oh. eat for the first week. Yeah. That's a way of saying, really, you, um, you have uh, captured me, but you haven't captured me completely. You haven't captured my mind. At the end of the first week, I, uh, my anger dissipated. Oh, largely dissipated. And is that, was that the situation, or was that just what you were saying to yourself? That's what I was saying to myself, really, mm. coming to terms with it, and trying to say, don't allow this anger to, to destroy you. Use the I wrote a, wrote a brief poem about it. I think I can remember it. Anger is like a consuming fire, seeking all whom it may devour. Do not extinguish the flames totally, but calm yourself by the gentle glow of the embers. Mm. In other words, saying it's a natural, normal force. We all have it, mm. but use it constructively rather than destructively. I suppose I channeled it into writing, into mental activity. Yeah, interesting. So I have a lot of entrepreneurs that follow me, and there's kind of like this curse that a lot of entrepreneurs have is that like we're looking to strive for progress, we're looking to get better, we're looking to achieve more. Um, and then the dichotomy is that, you know, we want to work less and spend time with their families. And that's a, that's a, that's a there's a bit of a split and an irony there. Um, did you ever think, why am I dragging my family all through this for your career? Because you took them to some dangerous places and you did some dangerous things. Or was this just a, a mission you had to do? I felt compelled to do it. Mm. Yes, I did. And I suppose there was a link between people who've almost become consumed by their occupation, by their work. I suppose there is a link there. And was that you? Were you at any point before this quite consumed with your mission? I think I always have been. Mm. I think I always have been consumed by it, by, by, by absorbed by it, you know, because, I mean, it's demanding. It requires everything you've got, if, if you like. Um, I mean, I always, when we're in Africa and beyond, when the kids were young, I always really insisted that we had a proper family holiday. You know, I always took, always, uh, four weeks off and said, right, those four weeks are going to be with the kids, with the family. The rest of the time I'm coming and going. When I was in captivity, I thought my 
actions have really ruined their chances. You know, it's really done them harm. But what I did in that situation, I underestimated the resilience of children. And I think you can underestimate that. I mean, all, all my four went on and um, uh, got their degrees mm. and went off into life. And in, incidentally, have gone off into uh, pathways that are, one might say, serving people. Mm. Um, not at my instigation, really. I mean, uh, conscious instigation anyway. Uh, but there are strains. I mean, I wouldn't deny there are, there are strains. There are strains. But somehow, you know, we're still married. We've been married for um, 53 years. Wow. It's <laughs> quite a long time. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we've got children and grandchildren. Mm. But, you know, every, 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 every strain, every tension can be turned and used creatively. Mm. Of that, I've no doubt. So, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but just trying to read what you're saying. Are you saying then that your time in capti captivity in some ways also served your children to be resilient and to maybe grow up a bit quicker than they'd have had to before? Yeah, and that, that I think was, was a bit hard on my son. I have three daughters, twin daughters and a son. And I think looking back, it was, it was tough for him. I think he didn't, I think may well have progressed him in life. Uh, but he was the youngest, and he was the only male in the family, you know. And I think he had to take more responsibility when he was younger mm. than normally he would have had to take. I don't think that's done him harm in the long run. He's yeah. now a father himself and with children, and there's a, in fact a teacher at a boys' grammar school. Mm. But, um, yeah, it wasn't easy. But then, yeah. you know, for goodness sake, you look around the world and you look at a situation of many kids around the world who have a a thousand times more difficult than my children had. Mm. At least they had a home. Yeah. At least they had. They were protected. They were, had a family. They had an education. And I think of all the kids around the world who don't have a home, don't have an education, don't have anything. So we're a thousand times better than, mm. than those situations. I say you compare yourself, and you always say, "Well, many people are very much worse off." Mm. And that's a theme I'm picking up with you: is this comparison? Mm. Because I think if people are stressed, unhappy. Mm. over the first world problems is maybe because well they expected a better result or they expected it quicker or they wanted more um, it sounds like what you've been able to do to keep yourself balanced and fit in your mind is compare yourself to the millions of people who've got it harder yeah and I've seen a lot of that you see I've seen a lot uh, working in every trouble spot of the world you know in Indonesia living in a very simple house in the middle of the night, pouring rain, people living outside the house under plastic sheeting. Well, you know, and, and children born under that plastic sheeting in the middle of the night, no medical facilities. I, I mean, the world is like that. We're all the kids in India. I mean, I, I, I founded an organisation. I founded, I suppose I might be a charitable entrepreneur, really, because <laughs> I, I founded virtually three charities of my time, one of which gives attention to the plight of young people overseas and helps them get their jobs and get them into life. But looking, at, looking back on that, I remember in India finding a little girl on the railway station of three years of age looked after by her brother of five and nowhere, no home, nothing. And just living on the streets that age, no one to no one bother with, no one to care for them. 
And how do you think that maybe has formed your viewpoint and your mindset and the way you look at life? Well, it's said that there are things that we can do and we should do uh, to enable life to be a little better for those who are on the margins of life, or a lot better if we can do it. And it's also made me resolute in recognising that warfare is not the answer to many of our problems. Um, I think we've been in our country, I think we've been too quick, speaking from the UK point of view, too quick to go to war to resolve some of the problems of terrorism. Um, I don't agree with terrorism, obviously not. I've been a victim of it and I've met many victims of it. But I don't think our politicians, for example, have sufficiently taken into consideration some of the root causes, why these things happen. Let me give an example of that. Um, if you look at the Middle East, you see that many of the countries of, middle, of the Middle East were formed by the colonial powers who brought together disparate groups of people ethnically, religiously, and so on. They were formed into a country, uh, artificial unit at the time. <coughs> the colonial powers controlled them. When the colonial era comes to an end, these disparate people can only be held together by, by strong central control. So a dictator takes over. Now, would it be that all dictators were benevolent? They're not. Lord Acton's dictum, you know, that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm remains as true today as it ever was. Yeah. And I remember saying when it was proposed that we should go into Iraq, or our country should go into Iraq in company with America to remove Saddam Hussein, remove a dictator by force who's held people together by force, and you release forces you're unable to control. Now how true is that? Mm. It's happened. Mm. Look at Libya, you know. I, don't, I met Gaddafi, I negotiated with Gaddafi. I don't believe he was... Uh, totally balanced. He wasn't all bad. He held the country together. Remove him in the way that he was removed, and bingo, what have we got in, in Libya? Absolute, total chaos, extremely dangerous. Mm. Many people uh, uh, living on the edge of life. Look at poor little Lebanon, you know, one million refugees in Lebanon coming over from Syria. Mm. And the people out of Syria because um, of warfare. Mm. Now, I don't believe, again, Assad is uh, um, necessarily a, a good man. But having said that, having said that, would it not have been better if we as a country, rather than half take sides as we did at the time of the Syrian conflict, have gone in and said, look, let's try and work in a mediating role here. Let's try and be mediators rather than propping up one side against another. Mm. Uh, we're always too quick to take the military option, yeah. I think. Oh, I have been too quick to take the military option in recent years. Mm. And I think that's a mistake because diplomacy takes place over a long period of time. You have to have patience. And sometimes I think politicians want results, you know, in the five-year term that they're in office, yeah, of course, you know, yeah. for the next election. Mm. So switching track a little bit, I think a lot of the things that you're saying are, are making me think, wow, we've got so much to be lucky for, wow. You know, my children haven't seen any of this. And um, part, I mean, obviously I wouldn't want them to experience anything extreme, but I feel like I have to show them what the world is really like. I don't want to isolate them too much. And I think that it's just so easy to take everything that we've got for granted. 
and, and, and make what we call first world problems. And I know I do that. You know, sometimes when I get a bit, if Bobby doesn't win a golf competition, he's only six. You know, I want him to be world champion. He's only six. <laughs> and if he doesn't win a, world, a, a golf competition, I'm like, you know, I'm depressed for the rest of the day, which is just sitting next to you. It's just ridiculous. So this is a bit of therapy for me, I suppose. But what could you say to people, all of us, who we know we take things for granted and we know we've got first world problems, we still make them big problems, whether it's in business or in life? I think it's important um, for young people to have a broad education, to be able to have a broad education that really does inform them about the situation in the world. And I think many, many, many kids are idealistic, they, they want to see change. They do not agree with some of the things that happen in, in the world. But to really help them, you know, and have that broader vision, have that deeper understanding of some of the dynamics. I think one of the, the problem with education today, or a problem, it's, there are many problems, of course, but a problem is that understandably, and this understandably, education is pushing, pushing, pushing. Uh, for kids to be versed in the science subjects, maths and what have you. Very important, yes. But the humanities, the arts, are really important. And one of the main aims in education ought to be to enable kids to think critically. And that's quite difficult because, you know, the news comes to us over the, over the, the um, media as it comes to us. Um, we... we what choice do we have? How do we know whether that is accurate or not? How do we think critically in these mm. situations? How do we really get to the root of these problems? And I think our education system should be enabling kids to think critically, to really investigate and not just to accept mm. uh, stuff that's pumped at them. But yeah. it's very difficult. We live in a difficult age in that of respect. Of course. How do you know what to believe? How do you know what to believe? Exactly. Yeah. How do you know what to believe? Mm. So... Is there any advice you'd give to yourself before you were held captive? I mean, it's, it's quite a, a popular question. What advice would you give to yourself, your 20-year-old or 30-year-old self? But I think, actually, this question has been made for you. I think you're the great person to ask it. Sitting where you are now, with all your knowledge and wisdom of life, what advice would you give to yourself before you were held captive? If I knew that I was going to be held... Well, in part, I... I I've realised that odds were stacked against me because I was given a promise of safe conduct to see hostages who were ill and one of whom was about to die. And I said to my captain, I said, look, if I come with you, you'll keep me. They said, no. I said, give me 24 hours to think about it. And they said, okay. And I got three sets of advice. Don't touch it with a barge pool you'll be captured, we can't be sure, or you'll be okay, because you've been given safe conduct. My own view was, I, I'm not sure. I think the chances are stacked against me. Now, what I want to say at that point is, I wouldn't want anybody watching this video to run away with the idea that I'm full of altruism. Um, I have the belief that when any of us, certainly including myself, do something for other people, we're doing it for ourselves. Mm. It's a very selfish act because of how it makes us feel. Yeah, um, and I don't think there's anything wrong in no. that. Uh, whether it's, I think it's, 
it's uh, wrong to bluff yourself. Mm. I think you should know yourself. But I think you know when you're doing something for others, you're also doing something for yourself, consciously or unconsciously. Mm. And I felt in, in that situation, if they're telling me the truth, and if I haven't the courage of my convictions uh, to uh, go and see that person that's about to die, and he dies, then I'm going to have to live with my conscience. Now, you can argue there's a personal selfish motive. Um, uh, I went back, of course, was captured. Well, that's, that's it. That's the chance I was ready and willing to take. Mm. I took it, and I don't complain about that. I've never complained about it because it was my responsibility. So I would say, in answer to your question, advice to give to yourself, be prepared to take your own responsibility for your own actions. Don't palm it off on somebody else. They may have a role in it, they may have a part in it, but you take your own responsibility. Mm. If you're going to do something, do it. If it goes well, good for you. Yeah. If it goes wrong, don't get into that whinging, moaning mm. mode of life which is, oh, poor me, you know, poor me. You took that action, you did yeah. it, you know. Face up to it and try and get through the situation. At the same time, um, I was very glad that I had, in past life, been an avid reader. I mean, I'd read very widely um, and had got a store in my mind of um, prose and poetry and so on, which I could draw on in captivity. But again, there are very few things that can prepare you for that extreme situation. Now, I know, and I've done training in this for people, that uh, those in the services, for example, uh, given simulated experience of being captured. I mean, they will be put into austere conditions for four or five days and treated as a hostage would be treated. Um, but they always know that at the end of five days, they'll be around. around. Mm. When you're a hostage, you go in, you don't know whether it's going to be one day, one week, one year, ten years, or whether you're ever going to get out. You just do not know that. And Very different from a prison term, you know, right. civilian prison. Because you've got no timeline. No time. And did, did, do you find that hard yeah. to wrestle Well, there's, with? No, there's very little you can do to prepare for that, other than to recognise it. That's how you're going to be. If you're captured, that's how you're going to be. Okay, uh, one thing to be able to know what techniques to follow to withstand torture. I mean, I was tortured. Um, well, had, you, had, you, had you been previously taught how to withstand it? No. 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 And it's something that's always, I've always been repulsed by. Mm. I mean, I, all I was, in my case, it was relatively simple. It was just beatings on the soles of the feet with cable. But I me, mean, you can't walk for a week after mm -hmm. that. Um, I did have a mock execution, but I didn't know at the time it was a mock execution. Right. And of course, you can argue that being kept in strict solitary for years is a form of mental torture, mm. too. You can argue that. And there are many people who've, you know, lost their sanity as a result of being kept in strict uh, solitary confinement. Mm. So, um, but I don't think there's much that can prepare for that, apart from the fact of your, it is important in your life to really store up in your mind, you know, good memories, if you like. One of the things why it's important to work with kids, with young people, I often say, if, you know, you can give children some good memories to look back on, in later life, when they're going through tough times, they might be able to yeah. draw on them. So it's almost like you were able to take some books and videos with you. Exactly. 
So just exactly, keeping your mind thing. exercised again. Exactly. So we've been asked here, did, um, did you have any regrets? It sounds like you didn't, but I still want to ask you the question. Any regrets? Well, I suppose there were regrets of um, putting my, uh, as, as you've already asked the question, you know, putting mm. a family through a, a period of strain and stress. But then that's been my life. Yeah. You know, I mean, my wife married me knowing that I was the sort of person that she I am. She knew what she signed up for. You know? yeah. <laughs> you know, I'd always, I've always, ever since, you know, the started my life, I've always been on the move mm. and seeking new opportunities, always with that entrepreneurial spirit. And entrepreneurial people are not necessarily the easiest people to no. live with. Because it you sounds know? like in your own way you've taken a lot of risks, like an investor or someone who put money in would. Sure. Exactly, the same sort of thing, really. I mean, some yeah. do it in the business world, yeah. some do it in, in different worlds. And that, as I say, they're not necessarily the easiest people to live with. And why did you take what other people would perceive to be to be big risks? A good question, and I wonder if I know the answer to it. I'm not sure I do. Um, I think part of the answer... Well, let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. It's an interesting point. Um, when you're in solitary you have an opportunity to become deeply introspective because no conversation, nothing. Anybody who's deeply introspective uh, and is truthful, when they look inside, they'll discover the two sides of human nature, which are in all of us, the light and the dark, good and evil, whatever you call it. And the danger is to be so consumed by the dark that you begin to lose hope and think what a miserable creature you are. And the way out of that is to recognize that we're all composed in that way. We're all, there's good in all of us, there's the dark side in all of us. And the idea is not to suppress and push down the dark and say it doesn't exist somehow to find a degree of inner harmony and inner unity. And I did that in part, or tried to do that in part, through the use of language, through writing, through poetry. Because I believe that good language, like good music, has the capacity to breathe harmony into the soul. And what one was seeking was a degree of inner harmony. And somehow one was able to find that um, in those years. But it was tough, mm. not an easy process. No. I'm fascinated by negotiation because I believe that it's a life skill. I think that should definitely be taught in schools. And of course, there's the hard perception of negotiation and there's mu the much more humanitarian from you. I mean, my child, my children, especially my son, he's the best negotiator ever. He's just reeling stuff back to me that I've said to him. So what are your tips then? I'd love to... Well. Yeah, my feeling is this. I, th I think if you're going to be a good negotiator, I think, first of all, you, it depends what it is you're negotiating about, but I think you've got to believe in what it is you're doing. You've got to be sincere about it. If you've got a, a, a product, you know, that's really a dud product, and you're trying to cover up and say, it's the most wonderful thing in the world, you know, there's that degree of insincerity. People soon twig onto that, mm. they soon know that. So I think you've got to be reasonably convinced in what you're doing. I mean, I, in, my, in my sphere, I was convinced that I was doing 
you know, working for something that was just and was right and that was fair. I think the second thing is you really have to be genuinely interested in people and in their point of view um, and, and listen. I think a good negotiator will listen, will understand other people and will understand where they're coming from and will take trouble to do that. And a good negotiator in my situation will not be seeking to enter into a win-lose situation. I'm, I'm going to defeat you, I'm going to beat you down. I'm gonna, okay, you can negotiate, you can bargain, but not beat someone into submission or beat them into the ground. Be genuinely interested in the relationship, because negotiation, really good negotiation, is a matter of relationships uh, between yourself and the other person or the other party. So I think you've got to be able to be genuinely interested in the mm. other and to try and work towards a fair outcome that is satisfying to both of you. Right. And if someone's pushing you for something you know you can't give, how do you deal with that? You have to tell them frankly. I just can't do that. You have to be honest. I think honesty is something that um, is very important in negotiation. I mean, I've often been pushed um, in that way when people have said, you know, can you, well, for instance, get people out of captivity in Kuwait. That was one of the issues that was put to me. And I had to say, frankly, I cannot intervene in due process of law. I, I can't do that. But as a humanitarian, I can try and see that these people are treated fairly uh, in that process. Well, we all know that judicial systems the world over uh, are not always fair. I, I often can't intervene in that, mm. but at least I can do my best to see. So you'd say, well, I can't achieve exactly what you want, but I can go some way towards it by doing this. That is what I know that I can try and do, but the other, I think you don't have a hope. Mm. And be honest, because I think honesty is important in yeah. all these situations, really. Mm. Okay, thank you, Terry. Wendy Whitaker-Large has asked, what does what does freedom mean? What do you think freedom really is? Well, people often say that I have a lot to do, put it this way, I have a lot to do, always have done, ever since I was a young man, with the criminal justice system in this country, with prisons. I've been in dozens of prisons. I was a founder trustee of a Butler Trust, which uh, is an organisation that gives awards to those who work in prisons and do a good job. So I've been intimately connected with them over the years. And people often say, ah, you know, life in prison is far too cushy, far too easy. And it's usually said by people who've never been in a prison, never any understanding of what goes on, and who are, let me put it like this, often justifiably angry when they're the victims of crime. I mean, if someone came into my house and wrecked the place, I'd be angry. Mm. I'd be very angry. But having said that, um, what people don't realise is that the thing that's most difficult in a prison and is the punishment is loss of freedom. Not to be able to make your own choices. Not to be able to go anywhere unless you're escorted. To be inside and a family member falls ill, you can't be at the bedside and someone dies close to you and you're lucky if you get to the, to the funeral or you're very lucky if you get to see them before they die. All those restrictions on freedom, of physical freedom, 
are really, really hard to bear. And that's a real punishment in prison, which people ought to recognise as a genuine, real punishment. Mm. I think also freedom means the ability increasingly in life to be at ease with yourself, um, to know yourself, to know as best you can some of your strengths and weaknesses, to recognise that there are certain things that you you can do and certain things you can't. In other words, to discover your area of freedom. Uh, there's no such thing as total freedom. We're all restricted, we're all bound in certain mm. ways. So there's no such thing as total freedom, but to discover your own area, your own parameters, and to be reasonably at ease with yourself. And that, I think, is a lifelong process. Mm. And I find it, for example, and I know it's a very trite saying, but I think it's true. The trite saying is, you know, some of the best things in life are free. And I discovered that when I came out of captivity. And for the first time in five years, felt the wind on my face and felt the warmth of the sun and could see for the first time the, the greenery of the countryside. And I thought to myself, yeah, that's all free. Mm. And it's great. And I can go through life and not appreciate it until the point comes where it's suddenly deprived. Mm. And then you realise, well, yes, it's important to have a nice home. It's important to have a reasonable salary. It's important to have enough to get by. But don't ignore the fact that some of the best things are free. Sure. And how do we, through your wisdom, do that when it's happening? Because I think we'd all appreciate more what we had when it's gone. But a lot of us aren't appreciating it, appreciating it while we've got it. So how do we appreciate it while we've got it? You know, how do we become happier and how do we become more grateful? Well, you know, in early life when you're starting out, you have to be fairly reasonably focused. I mean, I do remember in my early life when I had young children and I had the responsibility of paying a mortgage, of providing for their education, of making what I would think would be a success of the work I was doing. I remember thinking, that's taking all my energy, you know, all, it's just, and it was a strain. I would, I would, I would looking back, I admit it was a strain. It was very hard work and I had to be focused. But at the same time, I do remember thinking to myself, um, just remember, you know, the broader picture. There is a broader picture. Maybe for this period of time you really have to be strictly focused, but don't lose sight of the broader picture. Mm. Um, and that's again going back to where education helps, where if you've had some education in the arts and you've not just been trained in one particular field, if you can appreciate, I mean I appreciate books, reading, I appreciate music, you know, those are great things for me in my life. Mm. Um, classical music in my mm. case, but it needn't necessarily be that. Mm. And so, in other words, try as you go through life to develop a broader understanding in life so that you're not just a one-track boring person mm. who can only think about selling this or selling that or creating more money. Yes, it's important to, to I have nothing against um, 
you know, wealth creation. Nothing mm. against at all. And I'm not one of those people who's, who sort of feels, oh, you know, he's, just, he's wealthy, I'm not, and therefore, you know, mm. I, I should be angry about that. I'm not at all. I think people have worked hard for it. Good luck, mm. good luck. But in the process, be a human being. You know, just be fair. Try and be responsible, uh, not just for yourself, but for your neighbour. Mm. And make this world recognise that your input is go it could has the possibility of making this world a little better place, not just for yourself but for others. Yeah, it's funny you say about the broadening your knowledge, mm. um, because I think there's something innate in us which gives us a good feeling when we learn, and it must be to do with survival. Of course, the more we learn, the more beneficial we are to society. But I watched a documentary called Score two days ago, and it's about all the um, musicians, the people who wrote the music for films. Mm. And you don't realise the music is everything. Like that scene in Psycho, they took the music out, it looked like a joke. Yeah, exactly. Just, you know, that it wasn't yeah. even hit and it just looked like a joke. And then as soon as you put that harsh, I think it was a violin, yeah, yeah. it just made it. And of yeah. course, you don't realise, I knew John Williams, he um, composed Star Wars, but also Jurassic Park, Superman, E.T. and all these. Yeah. And, and you just realise the fruits of a film, not just the actors, not just the script, but how... Mm. And I just felt like I'd felt like I'd grown as a person. And it was a really great experience. So if anyone's watching or listening, you should watch the documentary score. And you just kind of triggered my mind on that. Well, in other words, what you're really saying is try and have a holistic yeah. approach to life mm. rather than just a narrow approach, yeah. you know. And I think if, if you have a holistic approach to life, it really does equip you for for the process of growing through life and getting older. I mean, I'm, I'm Long in the tooth now, I'm 78 <laughs> now. You know? How do you stay so passionate and so inspired and so enthused and so motivated to carry on doing your work? I mean, you've come to a random city, you've done a great speech, you've done this podcast. How do you stay so motivated? I think it's me. I mean, I, I, I'm really still passionate about mm. what, I, what I do. I enjoy what I'm doing. I think that's a part of a key to it as well. Enjoy it. You know, as I'm far as... So you're pointing at me. <laughs> <laughs> But as far as life goes, you know, as far as we know, we have one life. We don't know. We, as far as we know, we've got this life. Now, live it as fully as possible. Mm. Now, live and, and also remember. This is one thing I've, I've tried to remember. I don't always, but I try to. Remember that life is now. You know, at this point, you are the most important person in my life. Because this is my life. This mm. is your life. And therefore, take that approach, you know, that your life is going by, but you make it, mm. uh, or you at least contribute hugely towards making it. Yeah. And I think that's it, living life now, not mortgaging for the future. So one day I'm going to do what I've got to do, and then I'm going to, you know, retire and enjoy life. My heaven, you know, I, I, if, I re if I didn't do what I did, I'd be dead. <laughs> I would. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd be brain dead. Mm. I need the stimulation. Yeah, I think that's definitely another entrepreneur's curse is just like <laughs> more money, more money, more money, yeah. more targets, more goals. Yeah. You're doing all of this for the future, but you're sure. always pushing so far away sure. and you forget the moment. I remember reading Eckhart Tolle's Power of Now, which yeah. really... Yeah, I know the book. Yeah. That was, a, for me, a groundbreaking yeah. because I'm, I am a bit of that type of personality. What next? What next? What, what next? What, what next? next? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, well, what, what's next is now. Yeah. And because you can always just, you can be in this, always this illusion of wanting to feel content in the future. Right. And then all of a sudden, yeah. 67 years And then years when the future by. arrives, you know, and people retire, 
How many people do you see when they retire? Just go phew. Yeah. Well, I, I was lucky enough to retire at 31, but when I became a millionaire, and then I, <laughs> I, I, two weeks later, I went back and started yeah. working again. I've probably yeah. retired about five times. Yeah, exactly. And so I know, I, now I know I'm never going to retire. Mm. Uh, my business partner's stepdad, he's in his 70s, he actually recently had a heart attack. Mm. And I said, what are you up to? And he said, I've just taken another contract. I, you know, I want something <laughs> to do. I don't want to. And I, I think that, you know, like... The, the, you could have lots of mini retirements. You could have a four-week holiday every year, sure. and that could be a four-week mini retirement. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Sure. When I was um, doing a bit of research, uh, I mean, if you look on Wikipedia or IMBD or DB, what you know, you're, you're the list of the things you've done is amazing, uh, and all the charities you're involved in, and the charities you've set up, and the trustees. And I just think, how does Terry manage his time doing all of those things? Because a lot of entrepreneurs have got four things to do, and they're like, I'm overwhelmed. How do you manage doing so many things? I, first of all, have a, a very good secretary. <laughs> the answer to everything. <laughs> I have someone who manages my diary mm. and who's done for the last 17 years, has been with wow. me, and who keeps the diary and keeps the programme, and mm. who will say, look, I think you've got to space this a bit better than that, and will we'll, even it out and space She'll it push out. push back at you a bit. Yes, exactly. And now, I mean, I still do, we still do an awful lot of miles by car a year. I also have a, sort of a volunteer who helps with driving. Right, yeah. Uh, that sort of thing. So in other words, in my limited way, I'm very lucky to be surrounded by people who are supported. I don't think it's, you know, I think that's really essential now. Mm. And I've got to this particular point in life. Mm. Surrounded by people you, you know you can trust, and you can sh who can share with you, and who know you, you know, and who know what you can do and where you want to go, and mm. so on. I think that's that, that's how I manage. I manage my time in that way. Sure. So you outsource it to someone else. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I can't resist uh, new challenges. Mm. I find it very difficult when a new challenge comes up, and in some ways, the harder the better. You know, the more mm. difficult. I say, well, that's that's interesting to have got that puzzle. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's, that's how I do mm. it and how I enjoy it. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Now, I'll just take a couple more questions because I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I th you almost had a podcast or a radio show when you said, the charitable entrepreneur, I really like that, a nice little ring. Mine's called the disruptive entrepreneur. I thought that, that was great. <laughs> how do you balance capitalism, i.e. Terry makes money, he's allowed to make money, there's nothing wrong with him making money, and also, obviously, you you are a humanitarian, you know, you create a lot of money for people in need. How do you balance that perfectly? Well, I don't think I balance it perfectly. How do you try I, I think I balance the best way I can. Uh, when I came out of captivity, I had always had, prior to that, a salaried job. And the experience of being deprived in that way for years led me to say, I'm not going to continue with a salary job. I'm going to do now what I really feel I ought to do and want to do, and that is to give my time to these organizations and not to be paid by them. I'm not going to take money from them. But I'm going to earn my own living by writing and lecturing. And prior to captivity, prior to the hard experience, I don't think I've had the courage to do that. I think I've always wanted to say, oh, be dependent on the salary, someone else paying my salary, rather than saying you can do it yourself. And I did that, that 
25 years ago now. Wow. Now, I haven't, you know, I haven't made a fortune. I haven't wanted to make a fortune. It's not been my goal. Mm. I've made enough money uh, to keep myself going yeah. and to keep my family going and to do what I want to do. And that, to me, is the way I've balanced it. I think everybody has to find their own balance, their own way of doing it, you know. Mm. And as, I, as you say, I mean, I don't, uh, I don't despise the making of money for one moment. But I don't believe it's a goal and end in itself, as far mm. as I'm concerned. Make enough to do what you can do, mm. you know? Mm. Okay. This podcast is called The Disruptive Entrepreneur. <laughs> what does the word disruptive mean to you? I ask every guest and we get some, you know, I, I just love to hear your thoughts. What does the word disruptive mean? <laughs> Digestion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Which I don't suffer from. No, right. That's a unique answer. We've not had that one before. What would be your second choice? <laughs> second choice. <laughs> disruptive. Uh, it's a very good question. It's one I have to th think about for a moment. Um, I suppose it means um, I suppose it means this that in life um, life is full of disruptions um, and that if you're going to do something new you will be the cause of some disruptions <laughs> you know, you're going to do that you're going to Unfortunately, upset some people. Um, you may you may not want to, but you, there's a chance that you may. And I think you have to face the risk if you're going to do something new that you will be disruptive at times, mm. and it'll be disruptive in your own life at times. And I think there's a big difference of being disruptive, which means somehow changing something that's established. To being destructive. Mm. Destructive is different and I would not wish in any way, although I can't say I haven't always been destructive, but I would not wish in any way to be predominantly destructive. But from time to time I think it would be necessary to be disruptive. Mm. I love it. <laughs> I would love to get your message out there more and we've just hit over a million subscriptions on this podcast. So where can we get your books and you know the work that you do? Where can we follow you? Well, um, books are on, on the web on, uh, or in bookshops. There's, um, and your surname is spelled W-A-I-T-E. W-A-I-T-E. The first yeah. book I wrote in my head called uh, uh, um, Taken on Trust. <laughs> I forgot it. Then. <laughs> that would have been ironic, yeah. <laughs> Taken on Trust. And that's, uh, that's published by Hodder and it's still... Oh, I'm available. published by Hodder. Are you really? Yeah. Oh, good. Mm. Good. Well, my first editor was from Hodder. Right. Uh, a man called John Curtis, who's a great yeah. man, lovely man, dead now, unfortunately. Mm. Um, then uh, another book, which is on the web, um, a comic novel. I wrote a comic novel, just for the fun of it, mm. called The Voyage of the Golden Handshake, which is right. a story about a cruise that goes horribly wrong. That's mm. on the web. Right. Um, that's published uh, um, by Silvertail Books. Then I've got another book called Out of the Silence, which is a book of prose and poetry and reflections, uh, which is published by SBCK. Uh, and I've got a book coming out in two weeks from this broadcast being made. Ah, excellent. Called Solitude. Now, that is an interesting book. Well, they're all interesting books, I don't <laughs> know if I just say that. But it's interesting to me at the moment, partly because it's current, but I'll give you a bit, bit preview of it. 
It's um, a book about solitary places and solitary people. So first of all, I take the reader with me on a journey to some of the most solitary places in Australia, the most remote roadhouse in Australia, run by a Bruce, man called Bruce Shotgun Farrens. And we go and meet Bruce and talk with him about his solitude. He's 400 miles from the nearest shop. So if he forgets the milk, it's a heck of a way to go and get the milk. And so we meet Bruce and meet other people there. Then I look at solitary individuals who have, um, for instance, I, I meet three people from the intelligence service who've um, led a very solitary life in one respect because they've had to keep their work secret. How do they cope with that? One of those is the former um, British agent who became a defector, George Blake. George Blake was sentenced to 42 years in prison. He escaped from Wormwood Scrubs, finished up in Moscow. And I went to see him in Moscow wow. and spent five days with him. And I recorded that because he had an unusual solitary life. Um, and then there are other, uh, Myra Hindley, who, because of the criminal act she committed, um, went into a form of self-imposed solitude, you know, because cut off from other people because of her crimes. Um, Svetlana, Stalin's daughter, whom I knew. And finish up, there are others, there are others in the book, finish up with um, chatting and talking with the matron of the hospice, who's seen about 1,800 people uh, approach death and go to death, the last solitary journey we shall take in this world. And it's a book called Solitude, published wow. by SBCK, and is published in about two weeks' time. Okay, well, that's definitely one to read. <laughs> um, hopefully we can help you get that out there. Thank you. Um, why haven't you written an autobiography yet? Well, that, um, out of the um, um, Taken on Trust is semi-autobiographical. Right. It is autobiographical, really, yeah. because the book moves backward and forward in time. I locate it in the prison cell, and then I make reflections away from the prison cell to my life across life. Right. So it moves backward and forward. It follows, actually, the working of the mind in captivity. That's the structure of the book. Mm. So at one moment, you're intensely with me in the prison cell as we experience that. And then you're away back in childhood. So it traces the pattern of life mm. as well as the pattern of prison life and the two weave together. Right. This is just a little random conversation. Uh, do you publish all of your books on audio? Are they on Audible? Uh, Taken on Trust is on Audible. And... I've just been asked to put solitude on, on, right. on that. Yeah. I've just been asked to do that. And the reason I say that is because obviously everyone listens to my podcast on audio. I'm, sure. I, I now sell more books on Audible than I do on Amazon. Do you really? Yeah, it just seems to be the, yeah. the, the, the way people are consuming books now. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, I've, I've just been asked to do that yeah. um, for the next book. Right. So have, you, um, have you read Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning? I did. I have yeah. read it, Victor Frankl's book. Very, yes. very powerful book. Very powerful book. Mm. Yeah. My house is coming down with books. I, I mean, bet I've it got is, yeah. Hundreds of them. Right. And I hate to give books away. I always, yeah. if I get books, I like to keep them. Yeah, and you know, people should buy them for themselves so then they'll read them because it is a great gift to give a book. Yeah. But if you get given a book, maybe it goes on the shelf. If you buy yeah. a book, yeah. 
And of course, the authors like to make yeah. sure we get our one pound. Yeah. <laughs> now, there's one thing I forgot to say. Please. And uh, I put it in there because it was in answer to your earlier question about motivation and why do you do things. I don't think I should fool myself. I don't think um, anybody really should fool themselves at the end of the day. But someone once said to me, why is it you've been so passionate about seeking the release of people who've been captured? And I thought about that. And I thought, well, he said to me, then this person said, is it because you're seeking your own liberation? And I don't think you're right. Mm. I think there is part of that, that I'm seeking inner liberation as I seek for the liberation of others. Now, I don't think that's necessarily wrong. And I think it's important to recognise that when you do something, as I said earlier, for others, you're doing something for yourself mm. as well. I think that's a very powerful way to leave the podcast. There's um, the study of values is axiology and many people are driven by the void that they're trying to fill. Yep. You know, like the um, Alcoholics Anonymous was set up by an alcoholic. Sure. And if you go, I mean, Oprah Winfrey was abused as a child. And if you go back, you track through where people tend to put a lot of passion and a life's work into something meaningful, it's because they had a void somewhere in childhood or a significant event and they're just constantly trying to fill it. It's like if you didn't get enough love as a child, um, or I was quite overweight and I felt I was a little bit, I wasn't bullied as much as I thought I was because a lot of it was in my own mind. And so therefore I kept seeking the love and approval from other people and yeah. I lost the weight, but I still need a bit of that love and approval. That's true. And it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Studying the self. Exactly. That's one we'll probably know never Know yourself, the inner journey. Yeah. yeah. Terry, thank you very much. Thank you, Rob. Thank you. All the best. And you, thank you. Hi, it's Rob. We've got a couple of things coming up that I really wanted to let you know about. Uh, one of them is I'm going to be running quite a long experiment on doing a social media competition. So on my various social media platforms, on my Facebook at Rob Moore Progressive, on Instagram, which is probably at Rob Moore or at Rob Moore Progressive, on this podcast, I'm going to be doing some big giveaways. I'm probably going to pay someone's credit card off. I'm probably going to give away some prizes. So I'm just letting you know a bit in advance. I haven't decided when yet. Um, I'm just looking to do a little bit of a social experiment. Maybe I can get my reach and subscriptions up a bit more in return. So keep your eye out for that. Now make sure you're following me on all of my social media profiles because I'll probably be doing some random giveaways and not necessarily giving you advance notice about that. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is the 150th episode of the podcast, we did a live studio um, we basically got myself and Joe Valenti and we filled out one of our meeting rooms and that seemed to go really well uh, doing the live studio episode so we're going to try it again and um, we're going to do this for the 200th episode which just happens to fall pretty much bang on Halloween so we're going to do a business nightmares theme where I'm going to share with you all the mistakes and cock-ups over the years I've made and I'm going to bring in a couple of guests who've also made some cock-ups, not just to say how rubbish we are, but of course, so that you can vicariously learn from them so you don't make the mistakes again. And we'll drill into what we did, how we learned to improve the situation, why we made the mistakes, sometimes why we repeated the mistakes. So I think that'll be a lot of fun. And again, we're going to be doing it live in the studio. So you're going to have a chance to come and sit in. It's very intimate. I'll probably be 50 of us maximum. So there's probably going to be tens of thousands of people who would love to be here, but can't be here. So all you need to do 
to get yourself a chance of being in the live studio is either review the podcast, The Disruptive Entrepreneur on iTunes, or review one of my books that you haven't yet reviewed. Review either the podcast or one of the books, and then on my Facebook page or private message or in the Disruptive Entrepreneurs community, just let me know you've done it, show me the screenshot, and the first 50-ish of you, we will get you booked to the live studio. Uh, We had a great time last time. We went on for hours, as is normally the case. You'll be able to ask your specific questions with us live as well. So I think it'll be a great show. Tag me in once you've done that. Show me the review. And if you're one of the first 50, we'll book you.